Hello, this is Kevin Hart from WMAY. I love the James Bond movies and intended to do reviews of all 24 of them leading up to the next one, No Time to Die, although it's being pushed back due to COVID-19, pushed back to November, so I thought I'd rank them from worst to best in my opinion. This is not, like, definitively, this movie is the best, this one is the worst. Some of them I even acknowledge that these aren't really good movies, but I like them a lot. Or, I understand people love this movie, but it's not particularly my favorite. That being said, here is the James Bond movie ranking. At the bottom of the list, I have A View to a Kill from 1985. In A View to a Kill, Max Zorin, that's the villain, he's played by Christopher Walken, and his Mistress of Death, Mayday, played by Grace Jones, attempt to blow up Silicon Valley and make it look like an accident, so Max can sell his microchips and cut out all the competition. Don't worry, though, he's thwarted by an embarrassingly old Roger Moore, now nearing 60, who, despite needing a stunt double to do a dive roll, got Botox in real life to look younger. Now, this is not the most out-of-the-world plot of the bunch, uh, I've seen a lot of weird ones, and this plot is pretty lazy. It's ripped right from Goldfinger. But the main problem the movie has is it commits the cardinal sin of just being unacceptably boring. A movie that could easily be 30 minutes shorter drags on for what seems like a week and a half. The Duran Duran song, Christopher Walken, Grace Jones, they're all great. But none of them can save this terrible slog of a movie. Die Another Day from 2002. This was Pierce Brosnan's final movie. Um, he did four of them. In this one, a British millionaire and a North Korean agent do their own version of Freaky Friday to trick Bond, who is in a North Korean prison for a year and a half, being tortured for info of which he never gives. He teams up with Halle Berry, who plays an agent named Jinx, to take on the aforementioned body snatchers in a giant ice palace. Then they have to disarm a satellite. Uh... This movie is bad. Now, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. It, try, it tries to reference all of the 19 movies that came before it. Uh, some, of them are, some of them are extremely shoehorned in. Some of them are just very lazy. Bond drives an invisible car in this movie. Uh, yeah. The Q, who's now, who he was R in the last movie. John Cleese played him, but now he's Q. Uh, he explains it, but, you know... You know, your suspension of disbelief for a spy movie can only go so far. So, even for this spy thriller bordering on sci-fi. Is, uh... Next up, number 22, Spectre. This was the most recent movie that Daniel Craig did. James Bond must go after the titular organization, Spectre, led by Franz Oberhauser, played by Christopher Waltz, who turns out to be Blofeld, the head of Spectre. Who would have thought? James Bond teams up with Mr. White's daughter, he was a character from the last two movies, uh, Madeline Swan. Movie's big plot twist is that Blofeld, well, first of all, is that Franz Oberhauser is Blofeld. That's the plot, somehow the plot twist. But the, the plot twist that goes along with it is that he was uh, Bond's long-lost stepbrother who was mad that his dad gave Bond more attention than him. It's the driving plot for I you know for a James Bond movie it's a really bold choice not 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 in a good way Ugh. yeah it's I, I can't stand this plot choice I don't think it's very good um Blofeld has been pulling the strings the whole time for Craig's movies which 
look, this happened in the old movies a lot. Spectre did this. Um, they, you know, they had different agents, different, you know. But, but with that, the real organization of Smirsh is what Spectre was based off of. In fact, they reference Smirsh in some of the earliest movies. There was no Spectre in the books. It was just Smirsh. So they're basing that off of a real organization. Uh, so then when they try to do it in this one, uh, and, and, the, and it really is. I talked about the references and Die Another Day being shoehorned. Oof. It's a slow movie with good action and decent acting. I'm not a fan of the story overall. All right. Next up, we have Diamonds Are Forever from 1971. If Goldfinger kickstarted the campy Bond movies, this movie ratchets it up way up. Up to 11, you might say. After the more serious approach to James Bond that On Her Majesty's Secret Service took... Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger, brought Sean Connery back. Now, Sean Connery had quit after You Only Live Twice. He had a falling out with the movie's uh, producers and the directors and did not want to play the character of James Bond anymore. So he quit, George Lazenby took over, and then they brought him back for an insane amount of money. Over a million dollars they took to bring Sean Connery back, which in 1970, a lot of money now. 1971, unheard of pay an actor that much to come back to play a role which he kind of phones it in he really just is like I'm James Bond I'm Sean Connery that's he it's that's that's about the extent of it he got a killer song by Shirley Bassey who did the theme to Goldfinger but this this plot people people this plot all right let me attempt to do justice to this plot all right in Diamonds Are Forever Blofeld who was played by Charles Gray, who did a bit part in You Only Live Twice, uh, creates clones of himself, and he has two gay henchmen, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. They smuggle diamonds out of Africa and kill all the witnesses, so nobody knows what's going on. The diamonds that they smuggle are used to power a satellite with a laser on it, and Blofeld plans to use this laser to extort the world. James Bond enlists the help of one of the diamond smugglers, Jill St. John, who's playing Tiffany Case, and Jimmy Dean, the sausage guy, is playing a man named Willard White, who has not been seen in five years. I, I've seen it a lot of times. And look, this is just an excuse for Sean Connery to phone in his James Bond performance and objectify women a lot worse than Goldfinger does, by the way. Not to mention homophobia. This, this death scene that Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid have is it's pretty bad, even by them the standards of 1971 is pretty homophobic how they die so you know uh, it's camp to the max you can enjoy it and laugh but it's not that good of a movie oh boy you only live twice that's the next one on the list from 1967 all right i know another sean connery one he was a great james bond but not all of his movies were that good in You Only Live Twice, 007 fakes his death and goes to Japan to investigate the disappearance of a spacecraft, and he realizes the nefarious specter was behind it. The white cat-stroking Ernst Stavro Blofeld is played by Donald Pleasance. He gives a very creepy performance with some interesting line readings. He's about to kill James Bond, he thinks, and he goes, Goodbye, Mr. Bond. <laughs> oh my goodness. So anyways... The, the awkward casting choice of a white man to play the Chinese Dr. No is not the same level of offensiveness as, like, Fu Manchu, Charlie Chan. But let me tell you, this movie, James Bond darkening his skin and slanting his eyes to go undercover as a Japanese man, it's 
damned hardest to reach that level. I give the movie credit for actually casting Asian actors and actresses, unlike Dr. No, which just kind of did the same thing with uh, Dr. No for all the all the white characters played the Chinese characters. No, yeah, Bond's yellow face is just embarrassing. Uh, it looks really bad now. So, look, among, among Bond's gadgets in this movie are a cigarette that shoots a rocket, pretty cool and an ikea helicopter put it put it together in multiple suitcases it's uh it's kind of cool but you know it's one of those things it's like ah yeah it's a 60s movie they couple that with this movie's plot beats being somewhat lifted from thunderball the movie that came before it and this movie fails to impress the same way the previous four did a fun fact the volcano hideout that they do at the end of the movie costs more than the entire budget of Dr. No. Sean Connery, as I said, quit after this movie, only to come back two movies later, and the lackluster Never Say Never Again from 1983. We will be talking about that movie sometime. Next up, Moonraker. Oh, buddy. James Bond in space! No, really. The post-Star Wars craze was in full effect during this movie's production. It's an obvious cash grab. Hugo Drax wants to wipe out the human race and start over with a team of super fit and attractive humans. His plan is to fire bombs filled with a chemical that instantly kills humans to the Earth from his space station. James Bond and his love interest, Dr. Goodhead, uh, yeah, that's her name, played by Louise Childs, goes up against Jaws again. He's one of the villains. We'll talk about him later. In a painfully awkward cable car fight. Ooh, looks really bad. Even by 1979 standards, because the movie came out. Ninjas in a museum and a space Nazi. That's the villain. It's a good thing Q perfected a laser just in time for Star Wars to come through, uh, for James Bond to embark on this very serious and plausible mission. This movie is fun to watch and heckle, but it's pretty bad. Quantum of Solace from 2008. That's the next one. A wealthy businessman who's part of Quantum, which was intended to be the new Spectre, I think. He wants to steal and gain control of Bolivia's water and make a huge profit off of it. The movie takes place literally like minutes after Casino Royale ends. I was originally not a big fan of this one. In fact, at one point, it might have been at the bottom of this list. It's grown on me, though. It's still pretty boring. Which you wouldn't guess from its runtime of an hour and 46 minutes. It's the shortest one in the series and feels like forever. However, it was made during the 2008 writer's strike, and it shows. The Man with a Golden Gun, next movie on our list here. Yeah, title explains the villain and his weapon of choice. Francisco Scaramanga, played by Christopher Lee, is a killer who charges $1 million for a kill. He and Bond are both trying to get their hands on a Solex agitator, a sort of battery that uses solar power. Scaramanga, of course, plans to use it for evil. The Man with a Golden Gun is a mixed bag of a movie. On the one hand, like Live and Let Die, which came before it, Roger Moore is in his prime here. Great performances by Christopher Lee as the titular villain, some great locations and set pieces, but on the other hand, this is a weird movie, and not particularly in a good way. Scaramanga's island is in Thailand, so there's some 1970s racial insensitivities, it's a dash of sexism, Asian stereotypes, nothing on the level of You Only Live Twice, but still awkward. One of Bond's adversaries in this one is a henchman named Knickknack. He's a midget, and Bond disposes of him by stuffing him in a briefcase. Alrighty then. The World is Not Enough, 1999. This is with Pierce Brosnan, the third movie he did. Bond tries to protect an oil tycoon's daughter, who's secretly teamed up with Renard, a killer who cannot feel pain after a bullet was lodged in his brain. 
Bond enlists the help of a nuclear physicist named Dr. Christmas Jones, played by Denise Richards, who only exists to set up a pun at the end of the movie. This is a perfectly adequate movie with the usual twists and turns you'd expect. Rami Coltrane is back for this one. Desmond Llewellyn, who had been James Bond in the series playing Q over 35 years at this point, was clearly intended to be his last movie because John Cleese is in it. He plays R uh, and is sort of interning with Q. Next movie, Live and Let Die. A drug kingpin going by the name of Mr. Big wants to put the drug pushers out of business with free heroin and then move in. After what would be the final departure of Sean Connery, until the unofficial 007 movie, Never Say Never Again, Roger Moore, who had been successful in the TV show The Saint, playing a James Bond-esque character, even being referenced as a sort of James Bond type in one of the episodes, was an easy choice for the movie. Roger Moore's first outing... Really isn't the best of his seven movies. Certainly wasn't his worst, though. Live and Let Die attempted to cash in on the black exploitation movies of the 70s, and uh, it goes about as well as you'd expect. Kind of hits the mark. Eh. Well, the first half of the movie works pretty well, but it goes all over the place. After Bond and Solitaire, played by Jane Seymour in her film debut, get caught halfway through the movie. One of the henchmen has a claw for a hand, which is pretty cool. And the main villain dies because he gets blown up like a balloon. Not even exactly. When I say blow up a balloon, he goes and pops, although it's a little more violent than that. That is how they kill the villain at the end of the movie. Again, odd movie. James Bond jumps across a bunch of crocodiles at one point. Not the worst one Roger Moore did. Still a pretty odd movie. All right, License to Kill. Next movie up on the list. Bond's CIA counterpart, Felix Leiter mauled by a shark and his wife is killed on his wedding day. MI6 refuses Bond to pursue the killers, so he resigns his <clears throat> title of the movie there, a license to kill, and goes rogue. The culprits are a drug lord named Franz Sanchez, played by Robert Davi, and his henchman Dario, played by a young Benicio del Toro. Lighter is usually played by a different actor in each movie, but in this one, a David Hennison comes back to play him from Live and Let Die which I think is pretty cool, which is interesting because in the book of Live and Let Die, lighter when he gets mauled in this movie, it's the same as in the book. So, a little interesting connection there. And while Timothy Dalton does a bang-up job, I really like him as James Bond. Um, the movie's not as strong as the one that comes before it and has a bit of an uneven tone. Uh, there, there are very serious moments of suspense and plot twists and really high stakes only to be stopped by a ninja who has a Spider-Man-esque web shooter and he shoots a net at James Bond. It's, it's a good movie, but it's pretty flawed. Next up on the list, Octopussy. I swear this movie is rated PG. Octopussy is the main character's name. The main character of the James Bond. I know there's a lot of sex in these movies, but like this, I promise this one is rated PG. Anyways, James Bond is investigating the death of a 009, one of his fellow agents who leads him to India, where he meets the titular, again, this is a PG movie, Octopussy who runs a smuggling operation under the ruse of a circus. Octopus is played by Mond Adams, who was in The Man with the Golden Gun, playing Francisco Scaramanga's wife. The series reuses more actors than just the main cast. It's quite amazing, actually. Louise Jordan plays Kamal Khan, the movie's main villain, and his menacing calm works wonders here. However, I gotta say, after watching the musical Gigi, which Jordan did in 1958, I expected Khan to come out and start singing. Spend the money quickly. Mr. Bond. Gigi, am I a fool without a mind? Or have I merely been too blind to realize? I like that. It's good. That's good musical, too. But 
Anyways, he's, he's much more menacing, this one. As offset, though, by Stephen Burkhoff's General Orlov character, who is an over-eccentric warhawk who wants to destroy a U.S. airbase in Germany. This is one of the sillier movies that Roger Moore did, but I think it's pretty underrated. The movie has a sense of adventure like an Indiana Jones movie, and it's, it's just kind of fun to watch. Tomorrow It Never Dies is our next movie from 1997. A timely plot of a media mogul, Elliot Carver, played by Jonathan Price, wanted to broadcast all over the world even though China won't let him. He's manipulating tomorrow's news through murder and deceit today. Bond teams up with Chinese agent Wei Lin, played by Michelle Yeoh, to take Carver off the air for good. If you looked up a James Bond movie in the dictionary, this movie would show up. Brilliant display of humor, action, and twisted villains. I'd say this is the second best movie that Pierce Brosnan did. Up next, for your eyes only. James Bond is trying to get his hands on a strategic device similar to one seen in From Russia with Love. With the help of a woman named Melinda Havelock, who wants revenge on the movie's main villain, Christatos, who murdered her family, murders them at the beginning of the movie. Also, helping 007 is Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, Topple. If I were a wealthy man. Who played Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof, the movie, plays Columbo, an old partner of the main villain. This movie is much more grounded and basic than the previous Moonraker. That's a good thing. Right, this movie is an overarching theme of revenge, more so than others. The movie starts with Bond exacting revenge on Blofeld. Now, they did not have the rights to Blofeld when they made this movie. It's I know he's like the big villain everybody thinks about, yet the white cat. They did not have the rights to him because of a lawsuit dating back to Thunderball with Kevin McClory, who produced that movie and also produced Never Say Never Again, the unofficial James Bond movie with John Connery, which is kind of a remake of Thunderball. They weren't allowed to use Blofeld or Spectre until he died, which was right before Spectre, the movie, was made. So anyways, they kill Blofeld by throwing him down a chimney stack. He's in a wheelchair with his uh, with a neck brace, as you do, I guess. Anyways, uh, then Columbo tries to get back Christatos in the middle of the movie, and Melinda wants revenge for her family's death. Sometimes just going back to basics is the best for a series like this, and that's why many regard it as Roger Moore's best, but I think it's a close second to another movie. Up next, we have Skyfall. James Bond is presumed dead after he is accidentally shot during a mission. A disgruntled, put it mildly, former MI6 agent named Silva played by Javier Bardem, wants M's head on a platter. With the less-than-stellar Quantum of Solace coming before, there is not much hope for the James Bond series. Lots of questions being asked, like, was Bond relevant anymore? How could this movie work? Why are these movies even still being made? Those questions were put to rest in 2012 when Skyfall reignited the James Bond series. Again. It works well with the first two movies enough to bring it full circle by the end. This is a little corniness at the end, but I think people wanted it at that point, so now I give it a pass. I don't really like it. I won't say what happens at the end of the movie. At the very end of the movie, right before the credits roll. I won't say what happens, but yeah, it's just a little, it's a little on the nose. Judy Dench is almost last movie as M. She's kind of Inspector, but not really as much as her previous movies. She's kind of just like on a video in it. Skyfall is the name of James Bond's childhood home, which becomes a set piece for the amazingly epic finale. Next up on the list, Dr. No. 
the original OG James Bond movie. The official one, by the way. There was one before it. This is the one everybody recognizes the first movie. A low-budget classic about the titular villain Dr. No trying to destroy the U.S. space program. The movie mostly takes place in Jamaica, where Dr. No's island is located. Sean Connery debuts James Bond in this movie. Entrance, fantastic. He's playing cards, you don't see his face. The woman sitting across from him says, I admire your luck, mister. And he lights a cigarette and says, Bond. James Bond. Which, of course, became his signature slogan, next to Shaken Not Stirred. On his mission, James Bond runs into a CIA buddy, Felix Leiter, played in this movie by a Jack Lord of Hawaii Five-0 fame, and an island girl named Honey Ryder, played by Ursula Andress. Andress's entrance, rising out of the water, is almost as iconic as Bond, James Bond. However, our man, the movie is named after, well, he's supposed to be Chinese. The actor, Joseph Wiseman, is not. The white man, where they kind of just slanted his eyes a little bit. That's not the most offensive portrayal in the series by a long shot, but, you know, there's no gong when he appears, you know, it isn't a fake accent or anything, but it's still pretty awkward by today's standards. And although this movie is a formidable start to the series, and a great movie. Next up, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Agent 007 agrees to resign from MI6 to marry the daughter of a man named Draco, who's the head of... Union Corse, a crime syndicate, in exchange for the whereabouts of Blofeld. In On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Blofeld plans to dominate the world through bacteriological warfare if he isn't paid a large sum of money. A plot that in this day and age, well, doesn't seem so far-fetched. George Lazenby had never acted before in 1969 other than some wristwatch ads, and his first ever major film role was following up Sean Connery's James Bond. What could possibly go wrong? Well... Lazenby's acting skills are on full display, and although he certainly looks the part, doesn't quite get there acting-wise. And when he goes undercover as another man, Sir Hilary Bray, as opposed to trying to sound like him, he just dubbed his voice over with the actor who played Sir Hilary Bray. Yeah. However, this movie is remembered for its ahead-of-its-time serious tone that would not come back until the late 80s and 90s. And don't forget the downright sad ending. It's not something we'd see very much in the James Bond series, even nowadays. Unlike the other adaptations of Ian Fleming's original books, this one is still the most accurate. One of the best aspects of Her Majesty's Secret Service is the iconic ski chase scene. It's outstanding in every Bond movie with a ski chase trying to emulate it. Sure, by today's standards, some of the green screen and the close-ups might look dated if you watch the movie in HD. But listen, a stuntman skied down that mountain with a camera multiple times shooting on 35mm film with a giant Panavision camera shooting the footage as he was going down. That is dedication, and that is amazing film work. We need a bunch of shots so that, you know, James Bond going down with one ski because the other one broke off. Amazing. They did a great job with that. Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Yes. I know, this movie is lower on the list than you probably think. I have my reasoning, though, so just stick with me. In this movie, the titular Auric Goldfinger, Auric, by the way, A-U, like the 
symbol for gold on the periodic table. Auric Goldfinger plans to detonate a nuclear bomb in Fort Knox to radiate the supply of gold so people have to buy his. Agent 007 foils this plot, of course, but not before any twists and turns resulting in deaths, sex, and other Bond-esque hijinks. Let me start by saying, well, many consider this to be the be-all, end-all, best James Bond movie. I don't. Oh no, it's iconic and entertaining as hell, don't get me wrong. The title song by Shirley Bassey is killer. It has an amazingly memorable villain and a plot that gets reused, as I've said multiple times in the series. Odd Job is one of the best henchmen ever, and it caused a lot of grief for people playing the Nintendo 64 game, being too small to have to shoot, you have to aim down to shoot him. This metal bowler hat that he throws, I love it. Love it, love it, love it! The laser scene, the when he interrogates James Bond by threatening to cut him in half the laser, parodied more times than I can count. What happens in the movie actually, though, this is not as exciting as it is portrayed nowadays, but still, an amazing scene. You, know? you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die! James Bond's Aston Martin still shows up in movies to this day. Goldfinger also properly introduces us to Q, played brilliantly by the late Desmond Llewellyn. In the previous two movies, he went by the name Boothroyd, and Llewellyn didn't even play him in Doctor No. In both movies, he barely had any lines or personality. Then in the year 2020, yeah, I gotta address something. The elephant in the room. Okay, now talking about sexism in the 007 movies... I'm sure you probably just want to shut this podcast off and say, you are crazy. And look, I'm not going to sit here and preach to you. Okay, these movies are what they are. Much of them are product of their times. James Bond is not supposed to be a role model of a character. I get it. It's fine. You know, it's it's awkward, but you kind of accept it. This movie, Bond's main love interest, Pussy Galore, only falls in love with James Bond after he forces himself on her. It's implied in the scene, yes, there's being playful and they're kind of starting to like each other, but uh, listen, if you read the book, the complete opposite is implied. Now, listen, I still cringe hard when I watch that. Um, among some other things in the movie, but, uh, you know. That being said, the movie is still very epic in the showdown at Fort Knox and the subsequent airplane fight are some of my favorite scenes in the whole series. I can see why it's at the top of so many lists, and I still like it. I still think it's an amazing movie, and it paved the way for the campy James Bond that would define the Roger Moore era. It is still one of, if not the most memorable movies in the whole series. Just not my absolute favorite. Thunderball, 1965. Emilio Largo, the agent of Spectre with a badass eye patch helps the evil organization extort the world through the use of atomic bombs aboard a ship. Bond is able to put a halt to this with the help of Largo's sister, Domino. The scope of the series is widened figuratively and literally. The change of aspect ratio. Now, most of the movies were about as wide as your average television set. You know, a little wider on the left or right sides um, at that time, and then nowadays maybe a little more narrow. However... When this movie came out, they shot it an anamorphic widescreen so that it filled the entire theater. So the movie was much wider in an aspect ratio that, aside from two movies in the Roger Moore era, would stay throughout the entire series up to this day. And honestly, that wide aspect ratio really helps show off the wonderful set design by Ken Adams and a lot of the 
exotic locations that the movies will be shot in. Among the movie's main villains and henchmen are we have the beautiful Fiona Volpe. The three previous movies kind of toyed with this a little bit. This is the first female villain that seduces Bond, or is it the other way around? Turns on him and he has to kill her. Casino Royale from 2006. In a rebooted James Bond's first outing as a 00 agent, James Bond must stop a terrorist financier by beating him in a high-stakes worldwide card game in Montenegro. In the book, it's Baccarat, which James Bond plays throughout the series. However, in this movie, it is Texas Hold'em Poker, because they wanted to appeal to a broader audience. Okay? Whatever. Anyways, Daniel Craig's first 007 movie might just be one of the best James Bond movies. Certainly, I think it's the best one he's done. The original Ian Fleming story had been done okay on television in 1954, and a horrible parody version still haunts us from 1967. And I promise you, soon, I'm going to tell you about those movies in another podcast, because they are their own... They they are their own thing I can talk about (laughs) for quite a while. But this new version by Martin Campbell, who also did Goldeneye, kicks its ass all the way to the space station in Moonraker. If you thought License to Kill was a gritty movie, you wait till you see this one. The infamous torture scene will make you cringe so hard your shoulders will attach to your ears. Casino Royale follows the book quite well, but obviously updated for 2006. The first hour is brand new and loosely based on characters' flashbacks. The book starts in the middle of the movie when Bond gets to the casino, but again, many action scenes were added. A great entry for the series. And a fun fact here, one of the characters in the card game is an extra from You Only Live Twice from 1967, coming all the way back to cameo in this movie as her own character. If you want to know exactly who it is in You Only Live Twice, at the beginning of the movie when Bond fakes his death, he's in bed with a woman, and that woman uh, comes back at the casino. I think that's super cool. I love stuff like that. Next up, we got The Spy Who Loved Me. James Bond must stop another nuclear plot, this time from Carl Stromberg, who lives underwater in a base. Agent 007 enlists the help of Triple X, a Russian agent whose boyfriend, who is also an agent, Bond kills at the beginning of the movie. While Roger Moore may have been in his physical prime for the first two movies that he did, the writing isn't very strong. Now, this movie is the real deal, full stop, the best of Roger Moore's movies. In the same vein as Oddjob, we have another iconic henchman, Jaws, a seven-foot absolute unit of a man played by the late Richard Keel. Gets his name from his metal teeth that he uses to kill people and deflect bullets. One of the best parts of this movie is the dynamic between 007 and Triple X. They are both on the hunt for a roll of microfilm and have to travel and work together, and often annoying or trying to one-up each other. It's great. When Triple X finds out that Bond killed her boyfriend, the stakes are even higher, and they have to team up knowing that at the end, Triple X says she's going to have to kill James Bond. Does that actually happen? Have to watch to find out, I guess. It also has a skiing scene. Doesn't top on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but is a close second. Really cannot recommend this one enough. The Living Daylights is up next. Oh boy. I love this movie. On a hunch... James Bond disobeys his orders and refuses to kill a beautiful Russian woman who they think is attempting to assassinate a KGB defector. They eventually team up to stop a dangerous arms dealer. File this under the most underrated movie in the whole series. God, I love this movie. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, try to be serious. This movie kicks that trend in the pants. Timothy Dalton makes his 007 debut here. and does a damn good job at doing it. 
His quips are there, for sure, but you really feel the literary sociopath killer that Ian Fleming originally wrote in the 1950s. Unfortunately, but not as unfortunate as Lazenby, he only got to do two movies before a six-year hiatus of James Bond movies. Number two is From Russia With Love from 1963. Two Russian agents of Spectre try to lure James Bond into obtaining a decoding device with the help of a beautiful Russian woman. Of Sean Connery's movies, I think this is his best. The movie has its silly moments, sure, but this movie is very serious, much like Dr. No, before Goldfinger made its mark. The story goes by quick with interesting characters, intertwining plots, double crosses, intense action scenes and fights. It also is the first time we're introduced to the head of Spectre, Ernst Stever Blofeld. We don't see his face for another three movies, though. He punishes his employees with death if they fail. The beautiful Daniela Bianchi plays Tatiana Romanova. Bond's love interest, trying to trick him, winds up falling in love with him. And Pedro Almendarez lights up every scene he's in as Ali Karimbe, the head of Istanbul's MI6 station. He unfortunately was battling cancer at the time of making the movie and died right after wrapping up his scenes. His son makes a cameo in License to Kill, which came out in 1989, which I think is super cool. To recap, here's the ranking. To recap, here's the ranking of the movies. Number 24, A View to a Kill. Number 23, Die Another Day. Number 22, Spectre. Number 21, Diamonds Are Forever. Number 20, Goodbye, Mr. Bond. You only live twice. Number 19, Moonraker. Number 18, Quantum of Solace. Number 17, The Man with the Golden Gun. Number 16, The World is Not Enough. Number 15, Live and Let Die. Number 14, License to Kill. Number 13, Octopussy. Number 12, Tomorrow Never Dies. Number 11, For Your Eyes Only. Number 10, Skyfall. Number 9, Dr. No. Number 8, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Number 7, Goldfinger. Number 6, Thunderball. Number 5, Casino Royale. Number 4, The Spy Who Loved Me. Number 3, The Living Daylights. Number 2, From Russia with Love. And the number 1 James Bond movie on my list, Goldeneye. A Russian General Oromov and his henchwoman, played by Famke Jensen, Zenya Anatop, that's her name, steal an EMP-hardened helicopter to survive the electromagnetic pulse that would follow from the titular satellite, the GoldenEye. The real culprit, however, is James Bond's once-friend 006, played by Sean Bean, who was presumed dead nine years earlier. This is supposed to be a plot twist. The world's most famous secret agent is back, and this time, 007 is facing the ultimate enemy. Hello, James. What an unpleasant surprise. 006. What's the message? No pithy comeback? He was your friend, and now he's your enemy and you will kill him. They show it in the goddamn trailer. Anyways, this is my all-time favorite movie in the series. Ah, Pierce Brosnan's first entry couldn't have been smoother. He was born to play this part. Maybe even more so than Sean Connery. All right, listen, send your hate mail to my Facebook page or maybe my Twitter. The action, the romance, the story. Judy Dench's first movie is M. Bond's perfect balance of humor and seriousness. It is all amazing. And for you Harry Potter fans, you'll like to know that Robbie Coltrane, who plays Hagrid, is in this movie as a Russian agent. He has no beard. Bringing James Bond back from its six-year hiatus, spawning an incredible video game on the Nintendo 64, and showing Pierce Brosnan as the formidable actor and James Bond that he is. 
I love this movie, and it is my favorite James Bond movie. Watch it right now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to do more of these. Next, I will talk about the Rogue Agents, as they're called. They're the three unofficial James Bond movies. We'll have some fun with those. Hopefully to do more movie reviews after this. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon.